Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In the Open podcast. I will be your host today. My name is Eric, and today we're continuing our fireside chat stories. So what these are, if you aren't familiar, is each of us individually will choose a subject that we find interesting and tell stories about it or just kind of discuss the subject and through storytelling. So previously, Gabe told stories a story about his first hunting adventure and what hunting means to him. And then we had Jake talk about conservation and its history in the West and why it is very important. So today, I want to first off start by telling you guys a little bit about me and then get into one of my favorite seasonal pastimes, ice fishing. So what about me? I grew up in rural North Idaho, hunting, mostly fishing, and playing a lot of sports. So I moved to Montana for college after graduating high school at Montana Tech, go ore diggers. And while I was at college, I was able to meet Gabe and Jay, and that's when I really embraced hunting. You know, before this point, I would definitely go hunting every season when I can, but I didn't really get super invested into it. I was just, you know, weekend hunter in the fall, going after deer, and I, you know, I didn't really think I'd do much above that. However, though, I really invested a lot of my time fishing. I really enjoyed it. And when I came to Montana, it's definitely a passion that I carried over with me. So speaking of fishing, one aspect that I really enjoyed and have gotten into lately, actually about my, let's see, it would have been my sophomore year of college is ice fishing. So while you guys maybe have heard of it and be even some of you may be even familiar with it, it could be a totally foreign subject for some of you guys out there. And I kind of want to give you guys a little bit of background. So to be able to tell the background of ice fishing, I first want to tell you guys a story. So it's about my first ice fishing trip. It was with one of my college buddies, uh, Justin, and he was talking with me about fishing and he mentioned that, hey, you want to go ice fishing? I usually go out a lot during the winter. He lived in the Flathead area, so went out on uh, Flathead Lake quite a bit. So I was like, you know, I've never gone. I don't have any ice fishing equipment. I mean, sure, I'm definitely interested to join. And he said, no worries, just go buy a couple rods and maybe a lure or two and I'll provide the rest. And I said, sure thing. So I tagged along with him in that first day and we went out to this lake called Georgetown in Southwest Montana. And man, I'll tell you what, it was uh, probably about mid-January when we went out and we looked out on this lake and to me, it just looked completely foreign. It's just where you're so used to seeing water because I've been to Georgetown Lake before shoreline fishing, but I'd never been ice fishing before. So just looking out and it's just flat nothingness. There was probably a decent amount of snow on top of the ice. So I didn't even see the ice. So all it looked like to me was a giant field that just had a ton of snow on it and was perfectly flat. So we start walking out and I remember right getting on the shoreline or at least what I thought is I'm like, so we're on ice now. He's like, yeah, probably. And it just surprised me how just nonchalant he was about it. So we just kept walking out, kind of, he found a spot and we drilled some holes. I think at this time he had a hand auger, so it took us a little bit because January in Montana gets pretty cold and, you know, it's been cold long enough to where the ice is getting pretty thick. And he had a tent and man, and I will tell you that first experience was amazing because once we got that tent set up, we dug some snow around to kind of bury the tent and I'll kind of get more into depth about that later. But when you get in that tent, and you've got all the windows closed and everything. I tell you what, those ice holes just glowed. It was 
super dark in the tent. The sun was starting to peak above the, the mountains and the far off. I just can't. It's something you've definitely got to experience if you are in an area where you can ice fish safely. I highly recommend just getting out and trying it once or twice just to see if you're your thing. Even if it's not, man, those holes will glow because of the sunlight, you know, to varying degrees because, you know, there's a lot of snow on the ice. But that light will shine will shine up through your hole, and it's pretty impressive. And I think the coolest part of it was after we'd been fishing for a while and, you know, we weren't seeing anything. It was still a little dark to see down the hole pretty well, but that's the nice thing about Georgetown rather than some other lakes is it's pretty shallow. I think a max depth of around 20 feet granted you know it's managed by dams so that really can vary depending on the you know if it's a drought year or if there's a lot of water or what have you but what i thought was the coolest thing not and at the time i thought the ice or just seeing the holes glow like they were was the coolest thing but the next awesome part was looking down and seeing all of a sudden just a big old trout swimming by i'm you know i was thinking at least 18 20 inches and you know maybe that's not super big maybe that is just depending on your perspective but when you're looking through that hole and you're talking that fish being feet within you just swimming slowly underneath wasn't interested in what i was presenting but man i'll tell you what i was hooked pun intended (laughs) but i cannot tell you how awesome it was just to see fish swimming around down there and ever since then, every winter, I have made an, an extreme amount of effort to try and go ice fishing. And so if that story didn't get you interested, well, you just got to try it for yourself, I guess. So let's say you do want to get started ice fishing. What kind of stuff will you are you going to need? Well, there's a few essentials you'll definitely need. And by far the biggest one, I will say, aside, well, you know what? I think it is probably the biggest one is a license, of course. You know, it just goes with any fishing adventure, depending on what your local state or province regulation is, odds are you're going to need some kind of fishing license to make it legal to fish. You know, we've talked a lot about hunting licenses before on this show, and fishing licenses aren't really any different. If anything, they're a little simpler because unlike hunting, a fishing license, you only need a fishing license to fish and keep keep fish while in montana for example to hunt you would need your hunting license and all what that entails but you're also going to need your animal tag on top of it for fishing you just are going to need that license and montana specifically i believe you just need that license and an aquatic invasive species excuse me prevention pass which basically helps fund our state's conservation to help make sure aquatic invasive species don't get transported around the state which You know, those invasive species ruin fisheries for us. So anyways, I digress. The biggest thing after a license then, you'll need an auger. You'll need some way to cut through the ice. You know, you can have a hand auger, which is what I have. An electric auger, like the Ion brands are very good. They're a little pricey, but they're very good quality. You can get a gas auger. Those are pretty good too, a little heavier than electric and a little cheaper though. And then you kind of have more... I guess traditional if you're thinking old style, old school, or non-traditional if you're thinking modern, but those include you can use a spud bar, an axe, heck, you could even use a chainsaw. Now, if you're going to use those, a spud bar, for example, I warn you, if you're going to use that in like, for example, February or March in Canada, 
you're going to be there for a while. I took an ice fishing trip, another story with my in-laws and we were up over in Eastern Alberta, Western Saskatchewan, right on the border. And we were ice fishing there and I was thinking, oh yeah, you know, the ice, it's probably pretty thick. It's safe. You know, you need a minimum of four inches of ice. And, I, and you know, in Montana at the time, I was fishing on lakes that had a foot to 18, 16 ish inches. So I'm like, ah, I'm sure the ice is good up here. Yeah, it was more than good. It was three feet thick. So yeah, you know, if you're going to use a spud bar or an axe or a hand auger in those cases, which I had, man, you're going to be there for a little while. So, and the other thing to consider is what your state regulations is. And, you know, I'm going to use Montana as a lot as an example. I hope you guys are okay with that just because I'm familiar with it. In Montana, you're not allowed to have a hole larger than 10 inches in diameter for like regular, you know, jig and rod fishing. I'm not totally sure. I imagine the regulations are a little more lax if you're spear fishing through the ice. I know there's some lakes you can for pike, and in those cases, I would imagine you'd have a bigger hole. I'll definitely look into that. Maybe that's something I'll get involved with down the road next season. You know, today it's late March, so the season is wrapping up pretty quickly if it hasn't already in some areas of Montana. So I'm definitely interested in trying it, but I'll definitely keep you guys involved with that. So yeah, so a hand auger, electric auger, gas auger, spud bar, axe, chainsaw, whatever you want. And you know, if you're definitely thinking, hey, a little late for me right now, but I'm definitely interested in trying it next year, this is a really great time to get these kind of things. Because for example, that story I told you, I didn't have an auger at the time and my buddy was kind enough to let me borrow his. And so, I mean, granted, of course that meant I couldn't go out without him, which good thing we're good friends and still are to this day but once the season was kind of wrapping up in march april ish i went down to my local sporting goods store and saw that there was ice fishing augers on sale 25 percent off and you know the other day i was at another sporting goods here in helena and they're having a massive clearance 50 to 60 percent off on their ice fishing stuff so you know that stuff's out there right now if you're needing to get stuff so after an auger, the next important thing you should use, or get, I guess, used to, is a rod. So, what kind of rod can you use? You can use a regular fishing rod if you want. You, if you have a broken rod that, you know, you're using for spin fishing and maybe, you know, it broke towards the reel or even towards the tip, you know, that will work. You can, you know, shorten it to, you know, two, three-ish feet and it'll work just very well as a rod. Or lastly, you can just get ice fishing rods. And these rods can be very cheap. You know, I got, I was seeing some for 15 bucks, but you know, you get what you pay for and then they can be really expensive. I was seeing some for like $100, which is a lot of money, but I would imagine, hopefully, <laughs> for that price, you're going to get a pretty good quality rod. So what I did is I got some Shakespeare, I think they were fuel ice. I got like three or four of them and they were like 20 bucks a piece. You know, I've had them for, oh, this is my third season ice fishing now. So I'm definitely not an expert, but I'm very happy to share my experiences of it. And, you know, I've had really good experience with those Shakespeare's. Um, I've had to mess with the reels a little bit a couple times, but otherwise, you know, the rods have been great. Uh, just be sure when you're getting those cheaper rods, just look at them pretty thoroughly. Sometimes the eyes cannot be lined up properly because they are cheaper rods. So just be a little pickier. But otherwise, you know, any old rod will pretty much do. And then once you've got your rod, your auger, your license, next thing you need, bait and lures, you know. 
This kind of goes more in depth for the species of fish you're targeting, and I'll definitely get into that very um, a lot more as we go along with this podcast, and hopefully get you guys some video footage next season. Unfortunately, we might have a video or two from this one, but again, it's March twenty March twenty late. Yeah, 24th already, wow. So yeah, so once you've got your bait and lures, you're going to want to really tailor them to the species of fish you're targeting. So there's a lot out there on the market. I'll give you guys just a couple. I know I've had a lot of good luck with tungsten jigs. You know, they're the little... They are the little... um, Well, they're made of tungsten metal, which is a little bit, a lot, a very dense metal which is awesome because then it can get a small profile and then you can tip it with bait such as night crawlers, maggots, waxworms, also known as waxies. So th- that's one good method. That's a pretty good cover your basis for a lot of different fishes. You know, it'll cover you for perch, trout, walleye. You know, there's a good amount of fish out there you'll catch. Um, another good method is using spoons such as um, buckshot spoons. They make a good line of spoons they have like rattle spoons glow in the dark spoons um and again you can tip those with maggots crawlers wax worms and those work pretty well i've caught in quite a few fish with those mostly trout because that's what a lot of where i'm around at has a lot of trout but i've even caught burbot with those i'm hoping to be able to get more fishing experience and go after a more wide variety of species and kind of figure that out and hopefully you guys will be along for the journey for that and yeah so after your bait and lures you know for fishing that's pretty much it you know the only other thing i would highly recommend is make sure you have weather appropriate clothes you know ice forms when the weather's cold below freezing so make sure you're dressed appropriately it can be pretty dang cold so you know just get an idea of what the weather's going to entail and also you know when you're out on that ice you're not like on the shoreline where you're kind of, you may be tucked in the trees a little bit, or if you're on a boat, you can kind of maybe get down and underneath when you need a break or whatever. Ice fishing, if you don't have a tent, which we'll discuss more, you're right there on the open and it can get cold fast. I remember again, that Canada trip, a few days, it was minus 30-ish degrees Celsius, which is about minus 25 Fahrenheit. And that was without the wind chill and by gosh, I'll tell you, any part of your body that wasn't covered got cold very, very fast. So yeah, so other than, you know, making sure you're dressed appropriately, you got bait, lures, your rod, your auger, your license, that's pretty much it. The rest is really up to you what you want for your comfort level, desire, how much money you want to put into it. And so we'll tell you about a couple little fun miscellaneous items you can get. And I think the biggest one I would recommend but again, these aren't required. You don't have to have these to fish. But they really can help make the experience a lot better is a tent. And so, like I told you with that story before, to open this, a tent can really open your eyes to how much of another world you're in when you're ice fishing. Because, you know, when you're spin fishing, unless you're in really shallow water, sometimes you kind of lose sight of like, Hey, what does it look like down there? But if it's clear water and there's a lot of light going into the into the water and you've got your tent pretty well secured around where you're blocking out a lot of the light, 
it is pretty darn neat to be able to see down and see the fish swimming by and then you can see how they're reacting maybe you're jigging too aggressively and they're not taking to it so you can adjust as appropriately so and another miscellaneous thing that kind of goes hand in hand with a tent is making sure you got a shovel again you don't need one and you can make do without but they really help if you're setting up the tent because what you can do is you can shovel in if there's snow available you shovel that on around the tent and tents you know you can get any size style there's pop-ups there's flip-overs there's this the typical ice shanty it could be like anywhere from a plywood box basically with a door and no bottom to as complex as a fancy trailer i've seen videos of like ten thousand dollar ice shanty homes basically where you know they drive those out mid late december and then they leave those till march and you know they've got tvs generators a bathroom and pre drilled or not drilled excuse me pre-cut holes in the floor so that way you can fish so it can be pretty fun and speaking of a tent and a shovel i kind of want to tell another story that i think you guys will get a kick out of and that is again with my friend justin and this was at georgetown again and this is where I really learned to be careful about how deep you dig through the snow. So what happened was we were fishing at Georgetown again and it, you know, the ice was more than thick enough. But what the problem was when you get to the months of March and February is you start to get days above freezing. And in particular, we had a few days of above freezing and then it snowed a lot the next day. So we're going out on this lake and we hadn't been there in a, a week or two so we weren't you know familiar with how the conditions were going to be so we get set up in this spot and we dig down through the snow so that way we can get onto the ice because we're thinking oh you know there's like a foot of snow it was pretty insane what happened overnight so we dig to the ice you know so we dig through the fresh snow and then what that slush that had kind of been sitting there for a while you know freezing thawing freezing thawing and then so that way we could get right to the ice well what happened was as the day warmed up because we had dug to the ice we actually created a low spot basically on the ice so where otherwise you know you've got your ice layer your slush layer and your brand new snow we dug through that slush and snow layer to where we were on top of the ice so all the slush was gradually draining to us and we hadn't realized it but by the time the day ended for us and we decided to call it quits we had about three, four, maybe five tops inches of just standing water in our tent because we didn't think to just leave some snow in there to stay on top of that. And it was hilarious because I was reeling in a fish and it was a pretty nice little kokanee salmon, which is what one of the species you can target at Georgetown. And I, as soon as I got that thing out of the hole, it popped off the hook. But instead of falling back through the hole, this fish, I tell you, it was swimming on the ice because there was enough water. And my buddy and I were chasing around, slosh, water sloshing everywhere as we're trying to grab this fish that's swimming on the ice. Fortunately, we were able to get it, but I won't forget that day because I don't. hopefully I don't have to have that experience again of having four standing, four inches of standing water in the tent. But I tell you, it was pretty funny. Just seeing this fish swimming, darting around in the tent on the ice. So uh, that's my piece of advice for that. Just be careful how deep you dig down. 
And so kind of some other fun things that you can have are what we call flashers. And what these are is basically they're like a fish finder, but for ice fishing. And what they do is you have a transducer, you stick down your hole, I believe, and please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on this and let me know on our Instagram page. Um, But you stick the transducer down a little bit and make sure you don't make sure it's connected and you don't drop it and lose it. But it basically uses, I think it's sonar to detect kind of where the bottom is so that way you get a depth of water but it also lets you know if there's fish swimming by so in some cases you're not going to be able to see through the water which is a bummer but it is what it is i know i've been on a few lakes where the water clarity isn't super good or you're fishing maybe 60 feet of water and you're fishing that bottom odds are you're not going to be able to see that thick or that deep excuse me so what you can use are these flashers or fish finders and they, there's a lot of them out in the market. I think there's like Humminbird makes one, Garmin's another. Um, I think Vexlar's another one. They're all pretty good. I have, don't have much experience with flashers, and I'd like to get one. But I've, no, I've been on some fishing trips with a few people who have them, and they work pretty darn cool. It's fun to watch because it's a lot like being able to see the fish without actually having to see the fish. So that way you get an idea of how they're reacting, because what they do is usually they'll have something to display. Some have a dial, and then parts of the dial will light up corresponding to where that fish is at. So if you picture a clock or a circle, let's just say, and it's split up like a clock, you know, in the quarters, half for whatever, instead of, you know, the minute and hour tick marks, what it does is whenever it detects something, that part will kind of light up. And if it's the bottom, it'll stay lit up. And then you can tell if it's a fish sometimes because all of a sudden it'll light up and maybe it'll move up or maybe it'll move down or maybe it'll get really strong and then fade away as it swims under your transducer. And then other types, they'll just kind of display a fish indicator icon or maybe they have a continuous line like your traditional fish finders for open water fishing for a boat. But yeah, there's a lot out there and I highly recommend looking into them if you're interested. Another thing I'd recommend are tip-ups. This is another fun thing to have. And you can use tip-ups instead of rods if you want. What a tip-up is basically is it's a fishing, not a fishing reel, I guess per se, but a reel, a spool of line. There you go. That's a better way to describe it. Attached to either like plastic or wood and it sits over your hole. So you've got like maybe like a... uh, I don't know, let's just say 12-inch piece of plastic or if it's old school, it's wood. And what happens is that spool of line has a little notch, or not a notch, um, a little piece sticking out the side. And what happens is as a fish takes your bait, it'll pull, it'll swim away with the bait. And you want that to happen because then your line will will get pulled out of your spool and that spool will start to turn. And that little thing sticking out the side of your spool will hit your flag trigger and then the flag will go up and then you'll know, hey, a fish is taking my bait and swimming away with it. You run over, maybe give it a second, feed it more line just to kind of see where it's going. And then you grab your line, pull, set hook, hopefully, and hand pull in the fish. And that's how those works. Another another thing you can get that kind of does the same thing is a jaw jacker, but and unlike a tip-up, a jaw jacker uses the tension in the rod to set the hook for you. 
So it's basically kind of like a really low tripod where it's got like, it's more like a Y that sits really close to the ground. You put your rod into it, you bend the tip down to kind of like the base of the Y or maybe not quite the base, but somewhere in there. And then what happens is you just sit, wait, and a fish will hit it and it'll pull the line down, which will trigger your mechanism, your trigging, your trigger mechanism to go off, which then releases the bent rod. And, you know, that rod straightening out in theory sets the hook for you. And that way, you know, you don't have to be there to set the hook. It just does it for you. And then you run over and reel in the fish. Those, you know, there's a brand. And when I was talking about the like kind of how it's shaped like a Y, I was thinking of the official jaw jacker. Uh, they make one. It, it's it's pretty good quality, it seems like. And I think they run around, oh, I want to say 60-ish dollars. Probably depends on where you are, sales, whatever, what have you. So don't quote me on that. But yeah, they're, you know, they're pretty good. They can be a little pricey. Or you can hand make them like I did and where I just basically took a board, shoved a piece of PVC piping in it, or put a PVC pipe in it at like a 45 angle, shoved my rod in there, and then at the end I have a hook or a, a ring that then I attach a piece of metal to, kind of like really heavy-duty clothes wire kind of, of a wire. And then I have one hook that goes to my, my rod, another hook that hangs over the hole which holds the line and when that line gets pulled it pulls down the one end of the metal which releases the rod from the other end and there and then it sets the hook so again you know these are fun miscellaneous items you can have when you're ice fishing they definitely can help you go ice fishing and help you have a better experience or just be more comfortable you know like the tent i the reason i mention this again is i kind of of all of these i recommend the tent if you're going to get one, I recommend the tent first, just because not only does it help you see, but one thing I forgot to cover is it helps keep you warm. You know, like I said earlier, when you're out ice fishing, you don't have windbreaks more than likely. So a tent can be a really nice windbreak. Just make sure you have it screwed down. Cannot recommend that enough. You, If, if you want to have a good laugh on the internet, just search ice huts flying across the lake and you'll find some videos people not screwing them down or anchoring them down appropriately or maybe they did and it's just insane winds or what have you but they can go flying like a kite across the ice if you're not careful and then that can be dangerous if you're running after it you're not paying attention to the ice which brings me to the next point safety so for ice fishing you are on ice which isn't has its inherent risks, but not only that, you're on ice that is suspended or floating, I guess, over water. So that in itself has even more risks associated with it. And to kind of get you an idea, I'm going to tell you guys another story. This one happened actually here in Helena. Uh, Gabe was with me on this trip and a few other guys. We were fishing this reservoir and... You know, we had pretty safe ice, so just as a reference, I think I said this, but I want to just, it doesn't hurt to say it twice. Four inches of ice is kind of the general accepted minimum for a single person to go out ice fishing, you know, and then there's up from there, I think it's like eight inches for an ATV, 
maybe it's six. I think it's eight, you know, and just err on the side of caution. And it's very easy. Just internet search ice safety chart or ice fishing safety chart. And they'll tell you the thicknesses of ice. You know, my personal comfort level level is kind of more in that four and a half to five. But again, you know, four is the kind of accepted minimum. Some people go out on less. Wouldn't recommend it, but that's up to you. It's your comfort level. So that's all I'll say about that. So we were fishing this lake and it had about eight inches of ice. So it was more than enough to hold us. But what was spooky about it was what happened while we were out on the ice. You see, the way I've been explained and read on the internet is that ice kind of behaves a lot like tectonic plates. So we all, you may know that as materials warm up or cool down, they kind of expand or shrink and and it's just, especially true with water, you know, as water freezes, it expands, thus ice floats. But also what can happen is if you get a lot of warm and cold fluctuations, it can kind of shift around or as the ice is growing, it's expanding and it has to push against something. So sometimes that's against each other. What happens is you can get things called pressure ridges, which is basically when two sheets press against each other, maybe one slips above the other and one goes down, or maybe they're pressing, pressing, and then they kind of separate a little bit. You can get these instances where you have open water between two sheets of ice and you may not even know it. So you may be on like a foot of ice, walk over and then all of a sudden you're like on two inches of ice and a little further you're on a foot again because there's a pressure ridge there that just opened up and just froze over again. So that's something you got to be careful about. So what happened when we were ice fishing is we were walking out, found a good spot, settled down and we're sitting there in this uh, game not a game warden, excuse me, a creole surveyor for FWP was coming around taking fish counts, kind of get an idea of how many fish people were catching for their for FWP records, which is Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, and our Montana local game agency. So what happened is we were talking with him, all of a sudden, boom, super loud crack and thunder like struck, it seemed like. And all of a sudden, the ice we're sitting on sinks a little bit and like shifts over, and then water sprays up behind us. What had happened was, we think, a pressure ridge had just formed behind us, and it just kind of snapped like that. Man, I will tell you, that freaked the heck out of me. You know, I'm not exactly the strongest swimmer. I think my life flashed before my eyes. It was crazy just how loud and powerful this was. Again, it wasn't because the ice was too thin for us to be on or anything. It's just, it happened. So that's something you got to be careful about. And one way you can help improve your safety on the ice is by having spikes. Um, so what spikes are, I'm referring to, is going to be twofold. One, there's this, there's going to be spikes that you wear around your neck. And what I mean is, it's not literal like spikes, like a dog collar kind of spike but rather it's these two handles that have like a nail almost coming out of it and what it does they're usually tied by rope or some kind of bungee material and you wrap it around your neck and you hang it on your chest so that way if you do go through you grab these handles basically and then you can use them like a pick and you can hit the ice and pull yourself out you know maybe a good visual would be like a if you had like a large piece of cork with a nail sticking out of it that's a very rudimentary idea of what a pike of what these spikes are 
So that way you get a better grip on the ice because you think if you're wearing mittens or just your fingers, if you're digging on bare ice trying to get out, it's going to be slick if you fall through. So that's what these spikes are for is you hit them on the edge of the ice and you just pull yourself out with them. The other kind of spike I'd recommend are for your shoes and those are more like cleats and they can be metal. Um, And what they basically are is you just wear them over your boot and they help you prevent you from slipping. I know I've fished without them and with them I cannot recommend wearing them enough if it's really icy I mean if you're just on ice that has a lot of snow on top and it's not slippery that's fine I don't wear mine in those cases I still have usually the spikes around my neck though I usually I'll take those if I'm ever unsure about the ice or if I'm moving just to be safe and another way to be safe on the ice when especially when you're moving or just getting on and I probably should have started with this is a spud bar Now, what a spud bar does for you is it lets you, as you're walking along, just hit the ice in front of you so you get an idea of how thick it is. You know, if you get consistent with it, get an idea, you can usually be like, okay, one, two, three, four, five. Okay, I broke through on my sixth hit. And maybe you know that for every hit you give is an inch. Okay, therefore, it's five inches to six inches. I know I'm safe. I can keep walking, you know. Mine, I can't really work with it because I I kind of handmade mine in a sense with help from my stepdad, so it's not really a true spud bar. It's more like just a wooden stick with a, a metal head on the end of it. So I just usually hit until I know I'm about four inches and measure it just to be safe because I can't really get that consistency from it. But it helps me get an idea of, hey, this ice is safe. I can proceed just with caution. And then the other thing that really helps with safety is having friends or other people out there. I cannot recommend enough. You know, you can go ice fishing by yourself if you want, and that's fine. I'm not going to press judgment. I've done it by myself. But just making sure if you can, you go out with a buddy or if there's other people already out on the ice. You know, one good safety thing for me that helps me feel really comfortable if I go somewhere, I don't own an ATV, but if I go to a lake and see people four-wheeling out on the ice ahead of me, I know in my back of my head, what was it? Oh yeah, you need at least six to eight inches of ice for a four-wheeler. There's people four-wheeling out there. I should be good to go, and then I'll go out. I mean, I've seen trucks on the ice, which makes me feel really confident about the ice thickness. Doesn't make me feel confident seeing people out on the ice on the trucks. I always get nervous about seeing a truck go through and someone being in it, but it makes me feel better about being on foot on the ice. But again, like I said, you can go from one foot of ice to two inches and then back to a foot in a matter of feet. So just be really careful. And, you know, just be familiar with what you're dealing with with on the lake because, you know, you may be fishing an area that has a foot thick. You go over, no pressure ridge, but all of a sudden you're in six inches of ice. And you're like, what just happened? Well, there's a variety of factors at play. There could be a spring underneath that weakens the water or, excuse me, weakens the ice. Or there could be a current, you know, ice that forms over a current is going to be a lot weaker than ice that forms over still water. There's this area I like to fish near Helena called the Causeway, and it's pretty popular, so I'm not concerned about giving it away. Um, But what what you got to be careful about is there's the fishing access site, and then a few, oh, maybe a hundred or so yards, my estimate could be way off, to one side is where the lake drains into this channel and you actually fish the channel. So there is a current underneath you, but 
as you get closer and closer to where the opening of the like the bridge is because there's a road that goes over that channel you get water flowing a lot faster and it kind of gives you a good science experiment i guess because then you can see how the open water progresses or recedes and or the ice receding or growing based on how cold it is you know it could be below freezing for several days in a row and bitter cold but there's still flowing water there because it's not able to freeze and then hey it gets above freezing guess where that ice is going to melt first where that current is the strongest so that's what you got to be careful about and i know some of my best fishing trips have been with friends you know there's another lake i like to go to a lot when i was in i was living in butte for college uh there was a couple lakes i like to go other than georgetown and i'll tell you some of my best memories were going out with buddies and just having a great old time um this there's this one mountain lake i went to a lot and it was just fun because we'd always have a good chat or we'd just be moving around and kind of trying to break down this lake and it's just a great time out there if you can go out with people but if not you know it's just a great day to go out maybe just have a relaxing time out on the ice so, you know, overall to wrap it up, I know there wasn't a ton of stories with this, but I really kind of wanted to give you guys a little bit of a background about ice fishing and just kind of incorporate some stories and hopefully kind of pique your guys' interest, whether it's to try it or just to give you some more fishing stories. You know, if you live somewhere where you're not fortunate to go ice fishing, but you've got different fishing opportunities, you know, hopefully this is something you just kind of keep in the back of your head and go, wow, that would be kind of fun to try down the road or it's just great to hear it other people's experiences and you know i'd love to hear your guys's experience so well guys remember overall like hunting ice fishing could be as intricate as you want it to be you know but at the bare minimum as long as you got your license auger rod some bait and tackle that's really all you need so yeah and with you know again it's late march so the season's probably winding down now but this is a really good time to buy stuff because it all goes on sale and kind of keep in the back of your head over the summer. And as you guys get ready for spin fishing, I know I've already been out once or twice and excited to get out more. So, but I'd like to thank you guys very much for listening. It was, I had a good time kind of giving you guys my background about myself and telling you about one of my favorite pastimes. And hopefully I'll be able to continue bringing in more fishing stories and kind of how-to guides of fishing and photos if you guys really like that especially with the fishing i know we've talked a lot about hunting so i'm glad to be able to kind of break the, our regular subjects up a little bit with some fishing and like i said as we come into spring hopefully i'll be able to get you guys some more shoreline and kayak fishing trips in so if you guys are definitely interested in kind of finding out more about that definitely give us a follow at in the open montana and let us let us know all right, and thanks again for listening, guys, and I hope you enjoyed it.